And we'll read chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 5. Let's pray that God will speak to us and open our hearts and minds. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the authority that it is for our lives. Father, thank you for the book of Habakkuk tucked there in the Old Testament. Father, we pray that you'll speak to us through this minor prophet. Father, open our hearts and our minds that your spirit would reveal to us your truth. Father, speak to us for Jesus' sake and the gospel. Amen. The word of God where it says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe. Even if you were told I'm raising up the Babylonians that ruthless impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. And they all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gathers prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose strength is their God. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up these more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. 
I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he's puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Thank you, Peter. Well, thank you so much for your welcome and my, um, I'm short, no, the microphone's too long, that's the problem. <laughs> if you do play golf and enjoy it, I do apologise um, for being rude about golf. I'm sure it's very good for you. People often say to me, I don't remember sermons, to which I reply, I don't remember them either, and I preach them. <laughs> but I think of Bible studies and sermons a bit like coaching. The point of coaching is not that people remember the learning, the point of coaching is that people do instinctively what the coach tells them. If you're in the middle of a cricket match, the ball's coming your way, and you think, now, what did the coach say to do in this situation? It was a lovely Tuesday afternoon, I remember, and the coach said, catch the ball, by which time it's too late. No, the purpose of our study of the scriptures and of Bible studies and sermons is that God imprints these words deep in our hearts so that we act instinctively and automatically in response to what God has done. The thing that I, dread, uh, well, I dreaded when I was at St Jude's was that we were producing a kind of Bible quiz church where the leaders, the strongest people, were those who knew the answers to Bible questions like the name of Moses' grandmother or something like that. Have you ever been in a Bible study like that where, you know, it is... Now, does anybody know the name of Moses? Oh, yes, I know. Well, I mean, what a waste of time that is. Bible trivia quiz. They should be stamped out, in my opinion. Because the point of the, our receiving of the scriptures, as we've just sung, is that we live by every word that comes from God's mouth. We actually live by every word that comes from God's mouth. Not just know the words, but live by them. So what God's Spirit is doing, of course, is implanting these words of scripture within us to transform us. 
I uh, met uh, a lady at a church I used to go to uh, after, after the service. She was uh, very old and very ill and very poor. But she said to me uh, she was so pleased because the local council was giving her money so she could buy food to cook for her neighbours in the housing commission flats in which she lived. And she said, I, when I buy the food, she went down with a roll later, you know, to go and buy the food. I always buy a bunch of flowers as well, and I put a flower on every tray. Now, the thing was uh, that she wasn't boasting. She was saying what a privilege this was. And I thought to myself, what a remarkable work of God to make somebody so unconsciously and automatically generous and thoughtful. See, So what we should be looking for today is that God, we won't just learn a bit about Habakkuk, but that God will write these words in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. So let's pray that now. Gracious God, we depend on you for our life. We depend on you for our growth in faith. We depend on you for our sanctification. We depend on you to make us useful. We depend on you to make us holy. So please, by the Spirit who caused these words to be written, write them deep in our lives and hearts, in the very sources of our action and our thinking. Please transform us, please change us by these words that we might know you and serve you and honour you and live for your glory. For Christ's sake. Amen. Now, most of us have two ears. I think one ear is to listen for ourselves and the other ear is to listen for others. So often when I'm sitting in church listening to a sermon, I think, well, this isn't really very important for me. But if I listen very carefully... Somebody will ask me a question in the next two weeks, and I'll think, I heard a sermon about that recently. Yes, here it is. So I'm, what I'm trying to do is not just teach you and feed you today, but to train you. And I pray that in God's mercy you'll learn things today which will be useful for other people in the coming few weeks, indeed, for the rest of your lives. Well, you'll find an outline of the talk that I'm giving inside the uh, booklet. This is talk number one. I thought I'd start with number one. Would be a good idea. And I've uh, given uh, the title In Wrath Remember Mercy, The Righteous Will Live by Faith. Both of those are quotations from the book of, book of Habakkuk. And when I'm uh, reading a Bible book, I always try and think, What's the what are the main themes of this book? And often I'll find the main themes in a few words uh, from, taken from the book. Well, Habakkuk was a prophet in the dying days of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, just before the Babylonians came and sent God's people off to exile in Babylon. And the vision that he receives is about the wickedness of God's people, the coming of the Babylonians, and then the capture of Babylon by Persia, which would then lead to the return of God's people to Jerusalem. It's a deeply personal book, we've already heard that, as Habakkuk, like Jonah, wrestles with the words and works of God. Some people think that the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture means that the Bible writers sat there with their pen, waiting for God's words and whatever God said they wrote down. We discover from Habakkuk that it 
If it was sometimes like that, it was with Moses, of course, it was not all the time. For what we have in the first part of this book is this great conflict, this dialogue between the prophet and God, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. But notice that the oracle doesn't begin with God's words, but with Habakkuk's words. And they're words of deep complaint. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? So the word of God comes not just in God's reply, which we find uh, later on in that beginning at verse 5, but the word of God takes in the words of the prophet Habakkuk. And I think the way in which God causes the scriptures to be inspired, using ordinary human beings to do it, is quite extraordinary because uh, God doesn't remove the problems from Habakkuk so he doesn't ask the question. God copes with the question and gives an answer and both the question and the answer are God's words to us today. Now, some people think that if you're close to God, you'll live a trouble-free and a question-free life. That cannot be true. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? What, what's churning Habakkuk up is the wickedness of God's own people the wickedness of Judah, the wickedness of the church of his day. And Habakkuk's a prophet, he's a bringer of God's word to these people, and yet he's finding that his words are powerless, and even worse, that God's words seem to be powerless. And if you like, God is rubbing his nose, God is rubbing Habakkuk's nose in the wickedness of God's people. And that's a kind of a burden, a sorrow, that every Christian must bear the wickedness of the people of God. And if your average Christian despairs at the wickedness of the people of God, so must ministers. And one of the massive costs of being a minister is bearing the sin of your people, being aware of it, praying for them, preaching to them, and seeing no change. That's what it's like to be a Christian. That's what it's like to be a minister that's what it's like for, to be a prophet. You might think being a prophet is easy. You just get up and say what God says. No, that's not true. Uh, Habakkuk is deeply immersed in the life of God's people and has to face the pain of their sin. And notice the kind of questions he asks. I love the fact that uh, people in the Bible can ask such radical questions of God. They don't think, I couldn't say that, or, you know, I mustn't say things like that to God. Listen to this. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? It's a scandalous thing to say to God, isn't it? Because one thing we know about God is that he always ready to hear our prayers. His ears are always open to our prayers, that God is always more ready to listen than we are to pray, that God is infinitely attentive even to the silent prayers of our hearts that we don't dare utter. How then can the prophet say, how long must I call for help but you do not listen? Then notice in the second part of verse 2, 
Not only does God not listen, but God does not save or cry out to you violence. That is, he's saying, look at the violence among your people. People are killing each other, but you do not save. Imagine saying to God, you're not a saviour. You're not saving. You're not doing anything. You're not listening to our prayers. You're not saving. And then in verse 3, God is really rubbing Abihak's nose in the wickedness of God's people. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Notice the two levels of question there. One question is, God, why are you letting this happen? And the next level down is, why are you making me see it? Do you see the difference? One's a question of, why does God allow sin in his church? Why does God allow his people to be sinful, the nation to be sinful? The next question is, why do you make me look at it? The answer, of course, is that there must be some who see and some who pray and some who speak. And then Habakkuk opens his heart, doesn't he? Uh, Next bit of verse 3. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, he says, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. I remember going to an Asian country to speak a a number of years ago now. And uh, a lovely Christian man said to me, um, our politicians are corrupt. Our judges are corrupt. And our press is corrupt. There is no hope for our country. What sad words, you see. But how scandalous that that was true in the people of God. I am holy, God says, you shall be holy. But we find here not holiness, but sinfulness. And what is it to say that the law is paralyzed? God's teaching is ineffective. God does not listen. God does not save. God is not changing his people. God is not governing his people. He's the great judge. He's he's their shepherd. He's their guide, their director. He is their king. And yet the people are sinful. And please notice the sin is not just the sins of individuals but the corporate sin of the people. Now, we often think of sin in individual terms. That is, uh, I remember when I first began preaching for the first 15 years, I used to address people as individuals, and I used to pray that God would bring my words home to at least a few individuals in the church. Then I discovered that actually the Bible is mainly addressed not to individuals, but to the people of God as a whole. And then I realized that actually corporate sins, shared sins of a church are more dangerous than personal sins. See, imagine you go, and I'm sure this won't be true, if you, if you belong to a church which is basically prayerless and the, the leaders are prayerless, the ministers are prayerless, the people are prayerless, what will happen in that church? Well, if anybody is a prayerful person, they'll be immensely discouraged, won't they? Because they want to pray, no one wants to pray with them. If you have a prayerless church, 
If someone's converted and they join the church, they'll pick up an atmosphere of prayerlessness, won't they? And they too will become prayerless. And the problem there is not just that individuals are prayerless, but that the whole church is complicit in the prayerlessness. Maybe put it the other way around. Think of the corporate strengths or righteousness of a church. Imagine you have a church which is in every part of its life thoroughly evangelistic. So if you're not evangelistic and you join the church, you kind of feel, well, I have to be concerned to help my neighbours become Christians because that's what we do in our church. And if someone joins the church, they'll pick up the same atmosphere. If someone's a new Christian uh, converted, they join the church, they too will be evangelistic. So if it, the, the qualities of a church, you see, help every member of it. But the sins of the church damage every member of it, don't they? Why do you have a church where the church is, allows gossip to happen? So everyone's busy gossiping, not, not praying, but gossiping. And if you say, well, you know, that's, that, we mustn't say things like that. People, people think, oh, you don't spoil the fun. And how hard it is to change a church from being a gossiping church to being a mutually supportive church. And how, hard, how much harder corporate repentance is than individual repentance, isn't it? And what a great responsibility it puts on the individual, actually. Because if, say, the Bible reading is, you know, love one another and I think of that as a message for me as an individual, then I think, well, I'm a loving person, that's okay. But if I know this is God's message to the church, I can't rest until everybody in the church is a loving person. Do you see that? So how does a church repent? How does a people repent? Well, the leaders have to provide leadership and repentance, don't they? They have to say to the church, look, we're a prayerless church, we must all repent as individuals, we must repent together as a church. For here's the problem in Habakkuk's day, there may, there may have been some good and righteous people, but they'd be so discouraged by the sin of the church, wouldn't they? The sin of God's people. Because uh, when you have violence and injustice and destruction and strife and conflict, and when, as we find at the end of verse 4, the wicked hem in the righteous, so that even the righteous are persecuted by the wicked among God's people, then what hope is there and what is God doing? Now, when I meet non-Christians, one of the objections they have to Christianity is they say, well, how, how could a good and gracious and loving and powerful God allow the wickedness in the world? There's so much wrong in our world. And that's a very good question. But Habakkuk's problem is this, not God, how, how will you allow wickedness in the world, but how can you bear to allow wickedness among God's people? That's the greater shock, isn't it? Because we are meant to be God's holy people. We're meant to be transformed by the Spirit of God. So we're like the Lord Jesus. We're meant to be forbearing and forgiving people, loving people, generous people. And my question today is not, what are you, but what's your church like? That's the question, you see, raised for us by the, this book, Habakkuk. Not, what are you doing, but what is your church like? That's the question. It's not enough for you to say, well, I'm a holy person, if you live in a corrupt church where sin is winked at. 
No, the question that Habakkuk puts before, this book puts before us is, what is the state of the people of God? Well, I don't know your churches. From the look of you, I'm sure you come from lovely churches. But it's worth asking, isn't it? You know, what are the sins of our church? Because I certainly found in my ministry, if I preach against individual sins, no one minds. If I preach against the sins of the church, they get very angry. Because shared sins are deeply held sins. And shared sins lie within the fabric of a community. They're part of what ties the church community together, you see. Prayerlessness or gossip or whatever it is. Intolerance. The, 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 the sins help people feel that they're among friends. <laughs> Isn't it awful? Tie people together. And so when you begin to think that they, they might repent of their sins, they think, well, you know, we might lose our friends. Our church won't be the same anymore. It's amazing, isn't it, how attached we are to our sins as individuals and how reluctant we are to turn away from them and how, reluctant, how attached we are to our sins as churches and how reluctant we are to turn from them. There is deep agony in these verses. I hope you feel it. Because what is Habakkuk to do? Not give up, not turn away from God, not ignore the problem, but Habakkuk's job is to feel the problem. That's what he must do as a holy prophet of a holy God amidst an unholy people. To feel the pain of their rejection of God. Because, of course, when people raise with us the question, you know, how can God allow all these things to happen in the world? And I've said, well, we can ask the same question, how does God allow all these things to happen in the church? It's not just that these things are problems. That's not the, that's not the great issue. The great issue is that these things are sins. Well, praise God that Habakkuk knew they were sins. And praise God that Habakkuk turned to God. For who else can save the people of God if God doesn't do it? I often uh, say to people in dreadful situations, the one thing you can do is trust God. When all else fails you can trust God. When all else fails, you can turn to God. Well, what happens when the prophet turns to God? Well, in a way, the answer, <laughs> the, the medicine is worse than the disease because the Lord's answer is that he's going to raise up a wicked and rapacious people to destroy and capture the people of God. And notice that the Lord doesn't answer this just in kind of one verse, well, Judah is going to be judged, you won't like it. Notice the extravagant language that God uses to make Habakkuk feel the horror of what is about to happen. Uh, you'll notice in verse 6, by the way, that uh, our Bibles say, I'm raising up the Babylonians, actually the Chaldeans. Uh, what the Chaldeans 
had, had done was to uh, capture Assyria in 614 BC, uh, Nineveh in 612 BC, and Egypt in 6, 605 BC. So they were the big world power, you see. And Judah is a tiny little nation uh, in the midst of this, uh, this uh, passageway. The Babylonians are about to come and Judah will be swept aside. Here's the language. This is what God says. Uh, he's been rubbing Habakkuk's nose in the wickedness of God people. Now he's rubbing Habakkuk's nose in the ferocity and rapacity of the Babylonians. Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe if even you're told. I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Notice how God describes them, a ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth and seize dwelling places not their own. They're a feared and dreaded people, a law to themselves, promote their own honor. Notice God is underlining the fact that they're not a righteous people. They're a wicked people. And notice how effective they are. The horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. All their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings, scoff at rulers, laugh at all fortified cities, build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. Well, if imagine if you were praying for Australia and that was the answer God gave you. Don't worry, I've got some Babylonians in my hip pocket. They're going to come and destroy the lot of you. Sometimes God's answers to prayers aren't quite what we might like or expect. And Habakkuk, good on him, has the nerve to complain against what God is doing. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? Verse 12. My God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you've appointed them, that is the Babylonians, to execute judgment, that is on us, Judah. O rock, you've ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Now, when I was converted, the man who converted me, who was a retired missionary from India, met with me every Tuesday afternoon for three years to disciple me, which was a wonderful gift, I now realize, a very generous gift. And he was also a man who loved giving you a card with a Bible verse on it, you know. And one of the verses I remember was Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And the purpose of the verse, presumably, was meant to make me turn away from my evil ways of a 16-year-old, and uh, realized that God was too pure to look at that kind of evil. So it was with some shock that I realized that actually that's part of Habakkuk's complaint, but actually God is not only looking on evil, but using it. Do you see the point? God not only looks on the evil of the Babylonians, he's going to use it to punish his own people. For this is Habakkuk's complaint, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, you cannot tolerate wrong, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So Habakkuk's saying to God, well, it's all very well you think the Babylonians, but they're actually worse than your own people. <laughs> How does this help? You've made men like 
of fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no rule. That is, we're helpless. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with his hooks, catches them with his net, gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, this is the climax for Habakkuk, he sacrifices to his net, burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury. And there's the problem that the Babylonians won't think we're serving God, they'll think we're serving ourselves. They're idolaters as well as wicked people. Well, uh, truly the treatment is worse than the disease, isn't it? And how extraordinary to see so clearly that God can use wicked people to achieve his good purposes. There are some Christians in the world today who think that God is a God of nice things and pleasant experiences and that God only works with nice people and only uses us when we are godly. But it seems to me very clear from the Bible that God can use wicked people for his purposes as he did when he sent his son who was handed over and crucified. Well, I hope you see the depth of Habakkuk's despair But notice, uh, beginning of chapter 2, he concludes his second complaint with these words, I will stand at my watch, station myself on the ramparts, I will look to see what he will say to me, what answer I am to give to this complaint. I was in France a couple of years ago giving some uh, talks at a Bible college and I met a, a lady from Holland who'd married a Frenchman And she was living in rural France, which seemed to me quite a safe environment as far as I could see. But she was worried lest Europe go down the drain and uh, she and her husband be attacked by wicked people. So she said to me, she asked me the question, where is the safest place to live on earth? Imagining I would say Melbourne, Australia or something like that, or even if we were desperate, Tasmania. Where is the safest place to live on earth? Well, you know the answer I gave. The safest place on earth is to be in the hands of God. I love saying to people, particularly people who are dying, you are perfectly safe in the hands of God. I said it to a friend of mine last Sunday, actually, the Sunday before. He's about to die. And I said, you're perfectly safe in God's hands as you go towards death in the process of dying and as you die and forever. It's wonderful to be able to say that, isn't it? That's because he's a believer. He's perfectly safe in God's hands in the hands of the Lord Jesus. But we get so... uh, uh, so, I guess we get so moved, don't we, by watching our television and see the violence all around the world. And we think, well, if that violence came to Australia, that would be the end. It wouldn't be the end at all. If Australia becomes a violent country, we will live in safety in any way we do live in safety now. That is in the hand of God. There's no other safety. You could be walking across the 
playing golf, and I might be out for the day having another try. You thought you were safe, and bingo, you're dead. Like the first time I played cricket, and the only time I played cricket, I was walking along quite happily looking at the birds and so on, and this wretched cricket ball came and hit me in the head. I thought, what a stupid game that is. Possibly dangerous. But, uh, friends, we are, all of us, aren't we, one breath away from death. You assume you have a few moments till we get a cup of coffee or something like that, but you mightn't be around when the coffee's served. You might be dead. Every breath is a gift of God. Our lives are in God's hands. But how easy it is, I've discovered, for Australians to trust God for their eternal salvation, but not for their temporal welfare. And imagine Australia did erupt in civil strife. Or imagine in Australia if the church were persecuted, which I'm sure it will be. Would that be the end of the story? The end of our Christian life? The end of our happiness? Not at all. Whenever I go to England uh, to speak, I meet ministers who say to me, you know, our country's going down the drain. This is just dreadful. We feel so powerless to stop it happening. And they see persecution uh, of Christians happening already. And I say, what a great opportunity for evangelism. And I'm quite sure that in Australia, Australians are tolerant people, aren't they? But the mood increasingly, certainly on the Northern Ireland uh, that I experience, is that Australians are tolerant of everything except Christianity. And I say to young people, that is people who are 50 and so on, (laughs) and nowadays, you know, I'll be dead, you'll be persecuted. I'm sure it'll happen. For persecution is the normal state of the Christian church. Read the New Testament. We've lived in an abnormal time, an unusual time. But most Christians around the world today are persecuted, being persecuted. There are men, women and children even at this moment facing death for Christ's sake. In North Korea, one-third of the Christians are always in jail. They take it in turns, but there are always one-third of them in jail. And just imagine if there was a knock on the door now and some terrorists arrived. Their message was, deny Christ or die. I hope we'd all die, wouldn't we? Or would you think, oh, I've got the dog to feed. Oh, and the wife and the family, you know, work to do tomorrow. No, we trust so easily in earthly security and not in our gracious and powerful God. For the Lord has an answer to Habakkuk. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets that a herald may run with it. For the revelation waits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. 
though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and not delay. And then he declares his judgment on the Babylonians. Verse 4, see he is puffed up, his desires are not upright. We'll leave the righteous living by faith for a moment. Wine betrays him, he is arrogant, never at rest, because he's greedy as the grave, like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and take, takes captives all the people. The rest of chapter 2 is God's judgment on Babylon. So God has raised up Babylon. Will God then judge Babylon for their wickedness? Most certainly, God will raise up the Persians. And uh, the great might and power of Babylon will be destroyed and God's people will return from exile in Babylon home again. So God's reply to Habakkuk's second complaint is that the, the Babylonians are in God's control and will face God's judgment. And that little phrase in the second part of verse 4 is so important. In the midst of this, the righteous will live by his faith. That is, the righteous can still trust God. The righteous can still trust God for their salvation. Now, we'll look at these themes in more depth uh, in chapter 3, but let's just remind ourselves of what we've seen. See, the problem for Habakkuk is that he knows God wants his people to be holy. As we know that Christ died for the church uh, to wash her and make her pure, free of every spot and blemish. And we look at the church and we don't say that the church doesn't look very pure to me. And I might say when we hear the Royal Commission into uh, abuse of children, when we see those reports on our television, I think, well, the church doesn't look very pure to me. You see. The question is, how can God bear with the sin of his people? Why doesn't God transform us to be his holy people? What's God doing about it? That's the, the pain in Habakkuk's heart and in his life. He prays to God about it. God gives him the answer, don't worry, I will judge my people. Habakkuk says, but how can you use wicked people to judge your people? And God says, wait for the answer, and then explains that he will in fact judge the Babylonians and his own people will be saved. But this describes tempestuous times, times of conflict. And we Australians like suburban times when everything is peaceful, apart from a distant chainsaw, something like that. We think this is idyllic life when everything around us is predictable and quiet and peaceable and it is a wonderful place to live but our security must not be in our happy suburban lives our only security must be in God and our faith in God must be so strong that it survives tempest and storm and destruction and violence and injustice For when violence and injustice come, who can we turn to but God? No one else can solve the problem. No. In the worst of times, the one thing we can do, the one thing we must do, is to trust God. Let's pray.
God, our gracious Heavenly Father, please help us not to love the gifts and neglect the giver. Please help us to enjoy our temporal security but not be dependent on it. Please work in us a deep, deep, deep trust in you so that when life collapses, our first instinct is to turn to you. When persecution arises, we will turn to you. When our society collapses, we turn to you. When life is turned upside down, we turn to you. So please wean us from trusting in the good things you give us and please draw us to trust you completely and absolutely. Please help us to trust you in dangerous times for Christ's sake. Amen.